Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the third lecture in my series for courtesan, queen and gallant, the guitar up to the time of Samuel Pepys. And a welcome also to the internet audience because this is being streamed live. I hope you'll forgive me for being in such a casual dress. I know it makes me look a bit like a superannuated Hamlet, but the, the, thing, the thing is I'm going to actually be playing the guitar later and it really is much easier with a, a bare wrist, so that's why I'm in shirt sleeve order. Anyway, before we go any further, let me introduce to you the musicians who are going to play for us and we've got quite a band today. Maria Molina, Catherine King and Ulrich Wedemeyer. Well, up to now, I've been talking to you really about the Tudor period, and that's where I'll pick up the story for the moment. In the year 1599, so we're just on the verge, aren't we, of the next century, a poet named Tailboy's Dimmock, not a name to conjure with, I fear, published a poem so obscene, ah yes, I have your attention, so obscene that the Archbishop of Canterbury condemned it to be burned those were the days. Entitled The Bumblebee, it recounts a love affair between the bee of the title, standing for the poet, and a royal maid of honour represented, if you please, by a marigold. Eventually, the bee turns into a musician. Literature of this period is full of one-off experiments. It's a marvellous period in English writing. Things were tried that never really quite get done again. Anyway, the bee turns into a musician serving at the court of Elizabeth I. And the queen rewards him with a number of lavish gifts. And in fact, you have the passage that really concerns me, that concerns us, on the top of your handout. The kingly harp and the courtly cittern, the solace, viols and violins, the little fiddling kit and ancient gittern. Those are the presents that the Queen gives to her new musician. Well, the full inventory of presence of instruments runs to 17 items, but the gittern, and you remember that's the name for the guitar, the little guitar that we've heard in the two lectures so far, the gittern is the only one described as being ancient, as if it's become archaic. And in fact, you might compare a little-known play of about 1603 called The Fairy Pastoral, in which a character walks on the scene playing, and I quote, an old gittern. Well, yes, gittern was the common name in Tudor England for that little four-course guitar, essentially, if you like, a baritone ukulele that we've been discussing for the first two lectures, cultivated in London from about the 1540s onwards. If you were with me for those two lectures, you'll know that. And if you weren't, of course, you can get them on the Gresham College website. Plays, inventories of property, letters, poems, and many other documents refer to those little guitars and associate them with gentlemen, apprentices fleeing their masters, gallants, alehouse, wastrels, quite a broad constituency. And, of course, the Queen had a present of three given to her in 1559. Well, when they were the height of fashion, that's in the 1550s, gentlemen like Thomas Whitehorn, remember him from the last lecture, valued them for being a foreign novelty. The word he uses is strange, meaning, of course, unused at this time in 
the history of English, meaning strange, unusual, foreign. And what happened with that little guitar was certainly shaped by what took place across the channel, as so many things in our musical life have done. In Paris, two publishing partnerships issued at least nine books of immaculately produced music for that little guitar. Uh, they contain fantasies, Bronner, Galliards, Almans, accompanied songs, and Pavans, really beautifully put together. You've heard much of that music in the first two lectures, played by Ulrich Wedemeyer, who's here with us today, and our friend and colleague, Taro Takerchi. Well, there was even a tutor published. In 1569, James Rowbottom in London published a brief and plain instruction for to learn the tablature to conduct and dispose the hand unto the guitar. Take a look at the first page of your handout. You can see there what appears to be the title page of that tutor. Well, I have to tell you that what you're looking at is a complete fake, and the person who faked it was me. But firstly, let me tell you quite what I mean by that. The picture of the guitar in the middle is certainly, I mean, I, we haven't got time to go into it, but is certainly derived from, by several intermediaries, the original tutor, of which no copy is known to survive complete. And the people who printed the tutor also printed one for the lute under a very similar title. So all we did was we scanned in the lute, the lute version, took the lute out, put the guitar in, changed the date, changed lute to guitar, and there you are. And a, 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 an attempt to reconstruct what this lost book actually looked like. The weirdest thing is that some years ago, a friend of mine was traveling in, a, in the north of England and stopped at an antique shop. And there on the desk in a little wicker basket were some leaves of tablature, lute tablature. And he recognized them at once, this is lute tablature. And it was two leaves from this otherwise lost tutor. And then in America, somebody found two more torn up and used to stiffen the binding of certain books. And here's the best part. The two leaves found in England and the two leaves found in America fit together and come from the same gathering of the book. So you can actually play some of the compositions that were in this tutor. And as you play through it, you're moving from London to the USA, London, the USA, London, back again, bar, almost sometimes bar by bar. So there was a tutor. And this is the earliest guitar tutor in the entire European universe. It's a pity that it's not been fully discovered. One day it might. So if you own a large country house, as I'm sure many of you do, with an immense private library, please do look and see if you've got any parts of it cut up and used as stiffener or binding. Well, now, five years after our poet published that obscene poem with its ancient guitar, a writer in the north of England was surprisingly well informed about strummed music for the guitar in Spain. This is Thomas Wright of York, who issued an enlarged edition of his treatise, The Passions of the Mind in General, in the year 1604. It's an explora exploration of the emotions. You appreciate, I'm sure, that in the 17th century, people don't talk about emotions in English. They talk about passions. Emotions is not a word they use. They speak about the passions. And in the book, he notes the various effects that climate has upon people's temperament and the way they behave. And he notes that the hot weather of Spain drives the Spanish, I quote, to play their zarabanda, 
upon the guitar, which moveth them, as I hear reported, to dance and do worse. Now, for a writer of cold northern Europe, 1604 is really very early for anybody to know about the new vogue that was happening in the strummed guitar music of the Spanish kingdoms from Galicia across to Naples, taking in, of course, Sardinia. Some of these new strummed forms that were so in vogue around 1600 bore transparently Castilian names, such as Pasecaya, approximately thoroughfare, while others like Zarabanda or Tharabanda reflected some unknown Romance dialect. A few bore titles that actually evoked Hispanic settlements in the New World, such as Canarios and possibly Chacona. And the vehicle for this strummed music was commonly called in Italy the guitarra spagnola, or Spanish guitar. And we in Britain are, as far as I know, alone amongst the nations of Europe to have kept that term. If you go into a music shop now and say, I'd like to buy a Spanish guitar, people will know what you mean. In France, I'm not sure they would. In Spain, they think it's very odd, I should imagine, though I do, we do have a French speaker here with us who's going to perhaps correct me afterwards. Anyway, let me show you what this guitarra spagnola, this new kind of guitar that's suddenly fashionable towards 1600, let me show you what it is. You can see at once that it's bigger than anything we've been playing here before. Uh, it's essentially the same instrument as the little one, but bigger, and with an extra, <coughs> excuse me, an extra set of strings. And the strings are double, save for the top one, just as they were on the other one. The frets are still uh, tied gut loops around the fingerboard, and so on. So you've got a, a, what's called a five-course guitar, and there is a great deal of music for it. And now I'm going to ask Uli to play you one of the most familiar and common chord sequences of the period. This strummed music used little, um, what would you call them, little modules of chords played rather flamboyantly and repeated. And this is one of the most famous and enduring of them all, which was called the folia, or sometimes in French called the folie d'Espagne, the folia.
court of James I, James I of England, that is, who died in 1625, was exceptionally well supplied with well-traveled men and women of cosmopolitan culture, such as, well, let's say John Harrington, Henry Wotton, and Dudley Carlton. They'd all visited the continent in youth with a tutor, mostly after a period of residence at one of the universities. John Danvers travelled in France and Italy and made good observations, according to his relative John Aubrey in Brief Lives, while the many notes Robert Dallington compiled on his journeys formed the basis for his two books, The View of France, 1604, and A Survey of the Great State of Tuscany, 1605. Now, men like this would be sent abroad as envoys or ambassadors, giving them ample opportunity, as you can imagine, to source the fine goods which show the English court at this time, the early 17th century, becoming more open to the culture of Baroque Europe. And I think that's one of the outstanding contrasts for me between the Jacobean period and its Elizabethan predecessor. Many more people had been abroad and spent a lot of time abroad. It's more cosmopolitan, more open to Europe. The courtiers who had their great houses along the Strand in London, for example, brought many of their fine paintings with the help of Henry Wootton, who I mentioned earlier, England's first resident ambassador to Venice since 1550, and his successor, Dudley Carlton. Now, the term used for guitars, like the one I showed you, many of which came, I think, uh, I think they must have done, as private or commercial imports from abroad, are another example of what I would call, and I'm not making a political point, this new openness to Europe. The word gittern, borrowed from, ultimately from French, had been in English, current in English, for a long, long time now, and was thoroughly naturalized. If you know your Chaucer, you'll know you can find it there in the 14th century. But the new five-course guitar, such as you heard just now, and such as I showed you, came with a new name and the sound of foreign voices. In English documents of the 17th century, it may appear in a Spanish guise as a guitarra, as straight French, guitar or guitar, or in an Italianate form, at guitar. There's a whole wealth of cosmopolitan voices in the way the word was actually pronounced. And guitar and guitar are not the same. That final N makes all the difference, and the shifting of stress that we keep from guitar on the root syllable to guitar on the second syllable is a whole breath of a new dealing with Europe and the Romance languages. And we stay with the Italians just for a moment. Now, there were many Italian musicians in Jacobean London who might have helped to bring that new kind of guitar and that kind of playing here amongst us and our ancestors. The English court musician Alfonso Ferrabosco II, wonderful composer, really fully justifies having such a wonderfully resonant name, was the son of an Italian immigrant who had been himself a distinguished composer. And more Italian musicians were to be found, as, as you can probably suspect, among the various ambassadorial retinues that were generated by the sheer political complexity of Europe at this time. In 1618, for example, the Dutch musician and polymath Constantine Huygens took me a long time to learn how to do that, so I'll do it again. Huygens encountered a college of musicians, all of them Italians, at the house of the Savoy ambassador. 
And one of the grooms in the English Queen's privy chamber was Giovanni Maria Lugaro, valued for his very special quality in music. Antonio Foscarini, the Italian ambassador in London from 1611 to 1615, was a guitarist himself, if you please. One of the charges later laid against this man, Foscarini, by the Venetian state was that he once compelled his coachman to drive through a crowded part of London in a carriage, I suspect it was Cheapside, not far from here, with eight or ten horses. And Foscarini had a, a musician with him at the time who sang, but there was also a chitarra, and the way the story is told certainly implies that the musician was Foscarini himself, the Italian ambassador. Now, most of the music that guitarists played in the reign of James I and his son Charles were, of course, as you can imagine, never written down. It exists really up here in the brain and in the fingertips. And a lot of music can exist that way, as you know. What a curious expression it is, by the way. If you notice, I was recently looking at a newspaper report of a piano competition. And it said that the judges were especially impressed that the winner had played the concerto without the music. Well, of course there was music should play the concerto. What the writer meant was that it had been played without any notated music, and that's how closely we've come to identify written music with music. We're talking about a period where it's actually much more about your fingers and your ear and your brain. But although little was written down from the time of the two kings we're concerned with today, James and his son, his ill-fated son Charles, though little was written, if we go a little bit later, there is actually quite a lot we can find. So the library of Lambeth Palace, for example, holds the songbook of Lady Anne Blount, a collection of works in English, French, and Italian. There are songs for voice and theorbo, you know, the extended lute or the extended neck, all of which were presumably entered before 1655, when Anne, who signs the book using her maiden name, was married. She was married, apparently happily, by the way, to the man who abducted her. At some stage, an unknown scribe commandeered a spare leaf of this book for the guitar, and in a tolerably accomplished hand, he or she copied three strains of a chacon in French tablature for the five-course guitar. I don't know that this has ever been performed in modern times, but it's about to be. Uli, could we have the chacon from the Blount manuscript?
we've heard something of, of Italy, but what of Spain, so often thought of, which you think is the home of the guitar? Well, when James I came to the throne of England in 1603, he immediately took steps to end the protracted war with the Spanish. A political settlement first formulated in Brussels. It's really inescapable, isn't it? It keeps coming back. First formulated in Brussels as the capital of the Spanish Netherlands was agreed in London at the Somerset House Conference of 1604. So there were visiting lords from Spain and the Netherlands who came with substantial retinues. And I think it's very likely that uh, guitars were heard among the mucha musica de diferentes instrumentes, the great deal of music of different instruments. I hope the Spanish speaker will forgive me, that sounded at the various balls and festivities at Whitehall Palace, according to the official Spanish account of the visit. Indeed, I suspect that the report of those very performances may explain how our friend Thomas Wright of York, writing in the very same year, 1604, knew that the Spanish play their zarabanda upon the guitar, which moveth them to dance. Well, then in 1605, it all went the other way. A substantial company of British lords and their attendants went to Spain. Charles Howard, Earl of Nottingham, left England that year with a massive, a massive entourage for Valladolid, where the Spanish king was due to ratify the treaty that had been settled in, in London. Among those were the deputy master of the Revels office, there was Dudley Carlton, whom I've mentioned before, on the verge of a brilliant career as a diplomat and art agent, Sir Robert Drury, soon to be a patron of the poet John Donne. On the 11th of May, 1605, this vast cavalcade came to La Bagnesa, where, in the way coming, we were met with diverse gypsies, as they termed them, men and women dancing and tumbling after the Morisco fashion. While at the next town they saw, and I quote again from the official English report, a company of gypsies likewise singing and dancing, playing and showing diverse feats of activity. The Earl of Nottingham entered Valladolid in mid-May and was there for the procession of Corpus Christi. And Spanish documents of the later 16th and 17th centuries are in fact very rich in references to the kind of music and dance that such fiestas could entail, and guitars are often mentioned. The Corpus Christi procession at Madrid in 1579, a little earlier I admit, for example, used two lutes, two violas, and uh, two guitars. While a relic procession of 1596 at Andujar in Andalusia included a series of dances by gypsies to a five-course guitar, una guitarra de cinco ordenes, um, and percussion. The festivities for the entry of Margaret of Austria into Madrid in 1599, including dancing masters with guitarras, and a few days later, there was a dance of the acrobats with musicians playing a lute and guitarra. So there really were many occasions, really, for this vast, vast English delegation of lords and their retinues to hear guitars. Indeed, on June the 1st, they attended a masque in Valladolid where the Spanish king and queen, together with various English and Spanish nobles, danced galliards and pavans. And an anonymous guardsman, who was in the British retinue, reports occasions that evening when six Spanish women arranged in couples danced to country dance with snappers, snappers, that is castanets, on their thumbs. I suspect that country dance was saraband, often associated with castanets, and very likely played on the guitar. Let's try and reconstruct that. What sort of response do you suppose one heard in England 
to that encounter with castanets and guitars in Spain? Well, here's an answer. This is a piece called Madonta, and we're going to play it, or rather Uli is going to play it, and we've got a castanet player. So here is an attempt to... Rec and the piece uh, is one that was known in England in the time of Charles I. So here is an attempt to reconstruct what might have been heard at a court entertainment in the late days of James I or his ill-fated son, Charles. servants, spending quite a sustained period of time in Spain. It's perhaps not a great surprise that one of the first sure allusions to the five-course guitar of the sort that I showed you from the Jacobean court appears in a mask with a very strong Spanish flavour. This is the Gypsies Metamorphosed of 1621 by Ben Jonson. The performers included some of the most important art collectors and dealers of the day, notably Endymion Porter, the composer and art collector uh, Nicholas Lanier and George Villiers. So it may be no accident that the mask has really quite a rich visual context. Scenes, I'm sure you all know this, I mean, scenes showing fortune tellers, musicians and card sharps, some of whom are clearly uh, gypsies, one can tell by their clothes and the tawny skin that was associated with them. Um, were common by the first decades of the 17th century. A portrait, for example, sometimes attributed to the artist Bartolomeo Manfredi, who died in 1622, shows a fair-skinned innocent being tricked at cards as a guitarist signals information about the cards he has with a gesture directly imitated from Carav Caravaggio's painting that you may know, card sharps of the mid-1590s. So the guitarist has got his guitar around his neck, but he's standing behind the person with the cards and is, you know, is doing this, he's sending out a symbol of, the kind of the, what the, the person's hand is. Well, James I saw that uh, mask, the Gypsy's Metamorphose, three times in 1621. He clearly uh, couldn't get enough of it. Uh, and the main character is called the Jackman, not quite sure what that means, but, but who is required to play a guitarra. That is the word that Johnson uses, very, a very Hispanic version of the word, a guitarra, and sing to its accompaniment. And the word guitarra in 1621 must really have sounded quite exotic. I mean, people did still talk about guitars. It was the old word, but guitarra, 
that has the real zing to it, I'm sure, when it was first used. That's, after all, what writers can do for us, isn't it? Suddenly give new life to new words, or new life to old words. Well, the guitar was gradually becoming to be considered a fit accomplishment for the court women of Whitehall, the royal court. This revealed by the mask Britannia Triumphans of 1637, presented at court, uh, which mentions a lady well suited to standing by a queen's chair with a lapdog, for she seems altogether, and I quote, more fit far to play on virginals and the guitar than stir a sea coal fire or scum a cauldron. Well, the repertoire of amateur guitarists at court is illuminated by the activities of the composer Nicholas Lanier, whom I mentioned earlier. He almost certainly, by the way, played the character, the Jackman, in that uh, mask by Johnson, and therefore would have been the person, uh, as I say, who played the instrument. In 1625, he was sent to Italy by Charles to discuss, that's Charles I, to discuss terms for the sale of the Gonzaga picture collection. In 1627-8, he was in Italy again, notably in Venice. Now, one of Lanier's earliest songs is a set of variations over a simple ostinato bass. It just goes dum, 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 keeps doing it. Implying harmonies, which every, every guitarist knows, are those of, uh, often associated with the form the chacon. So given the fact that Lanier could play the guitar, I think there is a very strong uh, possibility that this, influenced by what he heard in Italy, is a Chacon song, so to speak, and that's how we're going to perform it now. And in fact, the text, which is by the poet um, uh, Crashaw, actually appears in one manuscript with the title Chacon. So I think the guess, that's the right guess. And you have the text of the song, which Catherine is about to sing, to my accompaniment, on the second page of your handout. <laughs> Oh. 
Nicholas Lania, the composer of that song, there's a wonderful portrait of him came to light quite recently. Incidentally, if you Google Nicholas Lania, you'll see it. And he's got his sleeves rolled up, just like me. He's playing the lute. Never believe those pictures where you see people in you know, wonderful gowns with beautiful lace sleeves playing the guitar. It's impossible. He was a court composer, really, in a very recognizable sense. He was a salaried denizen of the chambers and galleries of the royal palaces. But during the reign of Charles I, as I suspect many of you know, the court developed in ways that made it much less of an enclosed and a bounded space. In common with some uh, other European monarchs, the first Stuarts, so James and Charles, curtailed the tradition of the court progress, where the, you know, the court would just tramp around the country eating uh, various merchants uh, to death, really, by taking everything they'd stored up in their, in their cellars, and spent more time in Whitehall Palace. And this residence became gradually the core of an elite-built environment that extended and thickened the Tudor footprint. So by the 1630s, that palace at Westminster gave on to a line of great houses, many of them quarters or am courtiers or ambassadors' residences that were new, or remodelled following the line of the Thames to the city. A nascent west end now formed a continuously built-up district running down river from the seats of royal parliamentary and legal authority in Westminster to Covent Garden with its handsome new piazza, designed by Inigo Jones. <laughs> Contemporaries referred to this new western district in various ways that reflected its important place in the human and physical geography of London's. Since the entire area lay within the jurisdiction of the city of Westminster, some needed no other name than that. Others would say they were going to court, but many simply called it the town. Well, although the town 
contained some disreputable quarters, Covent Garden, for example, didn't remain an elite quarter for long, it was especially perceived as the, as the domain of the mode, M-O-D-E, mode. The term a la mode entered the language in the sense in accordance with the fashion in the 1630s. Now, long before in English, you could say that something was a la mode as three words, but it, normally you would say these gloves are a la mode of Spain or this hat is a la mode of France. The idea that you could just say a la mode as one word with everything brought together, to absolutely, and say, oh, how very a la mode that is, is a development of the early uh, 1620s and 30s. So there is a new usage whereby a la mode denotes whatever the town deemed to be fashionable. So it acknowledged the importance of fashion, but often, I think, entailed a wry implication that everyone else was obsessed by fashion, but of course oneself one was not. That's one of the reasons why it proved so very congenial to satire, and there's a great deal of satirical writing from this period about people who affect being a la mode. Attention to fashion in its most extreme form was caricatured in a figure of the fop, a male who's concerned to be a la mode, especially in relation to French forms of dress and speech had become obsessive. Now, as represented on the stage, and they very often are, fops prefer the company of women but have no real sexual designs upon them. They carry a sword but lack the courage to use it, and they dress with excessive interest in lace or ribbon. They're human parrots, if you like, whose chatter and plumage divert the women whose company they seek. <clears throat> now, it's a fop on the, on the Caroline stage from the time of Charles I, who provides an early sign that the guitar was becoming an a la mode pursuit of the town. The Country Captain is a play by William Cavendish, first Duke of Newcastle, performed in the early summer of 1641 at Blackfriars Theatre. Newcastle is caricaturing the country squires who were just then being required to mobilize the local militias. We are on the verge of civil war. And the performance took place amidst mounting political disorder. But the, poet, the author also mocks the gentlemen who aspire to be fashionables in the town, as if nothing were amiss, and get above themselves. No, nobody is more the target of satire in this period, and indeed other periods, than social climbers. The country captain of the title is Sir Richard Hunt Love, whose name is a giveaway. He's a classic country squire who really wants to get away from the, dote, the dirt and smoke of London and live on his estates, going hunting and entertaining his tenants, if he has to. But the gentleman who is satirised is called Precious à la mode Monsieur Device, a fop or English monsieur who dresses himself like a race nag, racing nag tricked out with ribbons. Since the fop is somewhat fantastical, he is not poor company. That's why he's on the stage. He's fun. He's fun. So this particular fop, Monsieur Device, is asked to join the family of Sir Richard Huntlove in the country for the summer, and he gladly accepts. And guess what he offers to bring with him? You're ahead of me. The guitar. He says... Oh, you invite... Actually, am I going to ax this? I suppose I've got to, haven't I, really? Oh, you invite me to my happiness. I can play well of the guitar. I think your music is but coarse in the country. We'll have a country dance after supper and a song. I can talk loud to a thiorbo, and that's called singing. Yes, well, the joke maybe wears thin after however many, however many hundred years. 
You can see that Monsieur Device believes himself well equipped to take the summer's entertainments in hand by bringing the diversions of the town to the country, including the Qatar. There's a very strong country-town divide also in contemporary writing and, and satire. What did he play? Well, we're coming to the end, but I think this English Monsieur would have played something French and good to dance to. Perhaps like this little piece, Une jeune fillette. Well, just to finish now, the, the Variety, which is another play by Newcastle, performed at the Blackfriars Theatre, satirises the London aldermen, maybe some in the audience, I should be careful, who study how to make a reverence, that's a certain bow, and dance a saraband with their French dancing master. That play is datable between 1639 and 1642. Long afterwards, the author, that same author, Newcastle, looking back on the early 1640s and pondering the court of Charles I as it had been on the verge of catastrophe and civil war, thought I seemed to come up with much the same picture. In a treatise he wrote for Charles' son, Charles II, who of course came back for the restoration of the monarchy, Newcastle blames the fall of King Charles and the civil war on the influence of those who had learned how to make le bon reverence, so the certain kind of fashionable bow, and could, I quote, dance a saraband with castanets on their fingers. I'm on the verge, as you can tell, of suggesting, in a perhaps a slightly private sort of way, that the Civil War was actually brought about by the Qatar. That might be an over-enthusiastic interpretation, but looking back, the thing that really dominates the field of view of this very arrogant nobleman from an ancient family is that the king fell too much under the influence of people who didn't really, weren't really people of great birth, but who were very interested in the latest fashionable pleasures, like dancing sarabands, playing the castanets, or dancing to the guitar. So here, to close, is another reconstruction. We're in the Hall of Christchurch College in Oxford, in the midst of the Civil War, where the king, of course, has transported himself. There are guitars, there are castanets, and there are singers. 
and this is what's offered to entertain the king.